Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. His word endures forever. You may be seated. Let's go ahead and commit this service to the Lord before we get into his word. Father, thank you for allowing us to be here. It is, God, your grace that has enabled us to be able to hang out. God, to be able to join together God, to be able to sing songs and praise and worship, to hear each other's voices in the midst of the congregation, to have such sweet and fun fellowship, God, to laugh together, to cry together, and to do everything in between. God, it is by your grace that you allow us to do life together. And God, it is by your grace that we've been given life in Christ. And so we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that we can sit under the teaching and preaching of your word. God, as we sang earlier, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would lead us on, that you would teach us, that you would encourage us, that you would stir us on towards good works, and that you would just give us understanding. God, help us to love you more today as we come in contact with you, your spirit, and your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Good morning, church. Um. Well, I, I guess I was kind of expecting a bit of a hurricane here. Maybe it hasn't come yet. I don't want to speak too prematurely, but um, I just wanted to quickly encourage you all to keep in mind those who are suffering from this hurricane, this weather patterns we've been having lately. Um, after service, I want to actually pray for Maui. I want to pray for Mexico. There are so many places getting flooded out right now. But I am so thankful that the, the potential oncoming hurricane did not stop you from gathering as the body of Christ to spend time together and to worship God together. And so this is good. It is good that we are here this morning. Um, Now, I want to start this morning by just taking a quick moment to just think about us. And it's not our anniversary or anything. But I just want to like, as I was preparing this text and thinking about this church, I wanted to articulate or at least express how thankful I am for you how thankful I am for this church. It is such a beautiful thing to be able to come to church in the morning and just be fully amped and excited to be with the people of God. 
And I know it's happening all around the world. It's happening all over the place on Sunday mornings and throughout the week. But I think particularly it's happening in this church. And I'm not saying that to boast. I'm not saying that to, for us to be prideful or to build ourselves up. I'm just saying I am so grateful for how the love of Christ seems to reign in all of you. And I'm just honored to be a part of it. Honestly, I just like me and Pastor Daniel and Pastor Joe, we kind of pinch ourselves and just go, man, it is amazing that we get to actually come and be a part of God's people and to be a part of you and to experience every day just the love of Christ manifested in so many different kinds of ways. I mean, this particular church, what we've experienced is just like, what I've seen is when there's a need, our church is jumping to just meet it. Whether it just be out of just complete generosity, financial needs, or just to lend a helping hand for something, for someone. I've also seen, by God's grace, just this hunger and this desire for God's word to be preached. You guys want to know what God has to say. And that to me is beautiful because I feel the same way. I want to know what God has to say. And I love being amongst people who genuinely and sincerely care and want to submit themselves to the authority of God's word. And I think an offshoot of that has been this beautiful love for one another. So it's this love for God and his word. But now we're seeing and experiencing this sincere love for one another. And that flows just from those great commands, right? To love God with our soul, mind, and strength. And then the second like it, to love our neighbor as ourself. And I see that here. I see people genuinely and sincerely loving one another. Good friendships, doing life together, caring about each other, thinking the best of each other. It really does feel like this is the united body of Christ here at Apostles Church. And I am so thankful to be numbered among you guys, okay? So please just receive that. If you're new today, receive that too, all right? I'm stoked that you're here too. But God has been gracious and God has been good. Now when I think about us, I think about the future of Apostles Church. And I think, how, how do we keep this going? Like how do we, I mean we're only five years in, but how, how do we keep maintaining this focus on loving God and loving one another and having this sweet unity that draws the body of Christ together to want to meet each other's needs, to want to stay together for the glory of God. Now, like I said, we're five years in. And to me, it still feels like we're in the honeymoon phase. It really does. I mean, I'm just like, I don't know what it is, but it seems like no one's getting upset that the trash wasn't taken out last night. No one's irritated that the dishes aren't done. The house isn't much to look at, but we have each other. <laughs> and by God's grace, we're enjoying the Lord together. There's just lots of grace. There hasn't been any big fights. And um, yeah, we're loving the Lord together. But I will say this, there are hard times coming. That's just a fact, right? Like things will get rough. Like relationships will be tested Harder days will come. For you, it might be the lack of toilets at our church. <laughs> that might be the breaking point. We only have two toilets here. I'm so sorry. Just stand in line and be patient. We're praying for God to provide. It could be, um, you know, just one Sunday you show up and your favorite donut isn't here anymore. And that could be because we choose not to bring it. It also could be because some kid gets here earlier than you and he's double dipping. Second two, you kids know who you are, all right? I've seen it happen over and over again. 
But, you know, things will happen that might, that might test our relationship, that might become frustrating to us. And when those things happen, we might be tempted to think less of each other. We might be tempted to even look down our noses at each other, to get frustrated, to maybe even get bitter. We might be tempted to just be like, not let something just roll off our back. What was easily forgiven now might not be easily forgiven or looked over in the future. And make no mistake, the enemy tries really, really hard to separate what God has joined together. He is proactively trying to divide what God has joined together. We see this in marriages. We see this in families. We see this in friendships. And of course, we see this in the church. We see this in the body of Christ. It is no wonder that the Apostle Paul warned against division and encouraged the church constantly to unity in every one of his letters to the churches. That's Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Every letter that Paul wrote to the church in the canon of Scripture, he includes teaching on staying together and warnings on do not be divided because the enemy will try extremely hard to stop the good thing that you have going on. Paul thought it important to teach every one of his churches about the danger of disunity. So it should come to no surprise at us that it's a problem. It's something that tries to creep in to the church and we should be vigilant. You would think it wouldn't mean the church, but it is. Like I said, we will face hard times. Our love for one another will be tested. So I ask again, how do we keep this going? How do we keep together for the glory of God and the good of the gospel going out into the community represented well in this community of believers. Our text this morning, I think, gives us a few answers to this question. And I hope and pray that by God's grace, we can receive it, worship Jesus together through living in light of it. Okay, so here's the, here's the, the answer that Paul gives us in Philippians chapter two. Are you ready? How do we stay together? The way we stay together is by living and dying for each other. The way you and I stay together is by living and dying for each other just as Christ has done for us. The way Christ has done for us. This is the central message of Philippians chapter two. And in this chapter, Paul gives us the motivation to live this way in verses one and two, the method to live this way in verses three and four, and then he just gives us the majesty in living and dying for each other in verses five through 11. Now, before we dive into Philippians, the actual text that we're in this morning, I wanna give you a few things that you should know about the, the church of Philippi and the letter of the Philippians, so it might be helpful to kind of wrap your mind around what's happening here in this story, or in this letter, pardon me. Now, Philippians, or the church of Philippi, they were a healthy church. They were a really healthy church. So we're not dropping into some dysfunctional church that's really struggling. We're dropping into a church today that if you went to on a Sunday morning, you would hear faithful gospel preaching 
And you would experience really a sincere gospel culture. Like just people who love Jesus, who love the word, who are preaching the word faithfully. I mean, Paul explains to us, mostly in chapter one of Philippians, but also throughout the letter, how healthy this church is. He wants to encourage the church and then get into this teaching on unity. Not just like what I was doing earlier this morning, but a little bit like that. In the letter, we see this. Paul writes and rejoices in their healthiness. He says that they are partners in the gospel in verse five. He points out that the Philippian church are faithfully preaching the gospel since their plant. They're just killing it. They are doing a really good job preaching the gospel. He is confident that they are genuinely saved in verse 6. They are a prayerful church in verse 19. They are a courageous church. All throughout the letter, they're being persecuted for their gospel witness. That is part of the reason why Paul is encouraging them to remain steadfast in the gospel because they're, they're encountering such severe persecution in the church of Philippi. They are a deeply loved church. Paul writes that he loves them with the affections of Christ. How about that for like a postcard right there? I love you with the affections of Christ. That's verse eight. And then we read they're a missional church. They support Paul's missions work with food, with money, with prayer, and even personnel. Paul even goes to say that they are the only church in that region that actually remained faithful to him and supported him by giving him financial gifts so that he can go preach the gospel. All to say, we're talking about a healthy church here. This church is doing good things are really good, but there seems to be a little spark of division in their midst. There seems to be something that's trying to tear at the fabric of their unity. Now, Paul's caught wind of their unity being threatened, and this could have stemmed from two things in the book, and I'll just give them to you quickly. Chapter four, we read there are two women who are fighting. They are quarreling amongst each other, and Paul encourages the church for these women to, hey, come alongside these women whatever this argument might be, and help them to reconcile. That's chapter four, verses two and three. So we aren't sure exactly what the dispute was about. All we know is that they were arguing and some bickering on a personal level, and Paul says, hey, let's help these women figure this out. Let's unite these women together. Let's have restoration and reconciliation happen in the body. The other possibility is that we read in chapter three that legalism is trying to creep into the church like it has been trying to creep into the church through all of Paul's churches that he planted and through all of Christ's church throughout the, throughout the ages, legalism is trying to creep in to the church in Philippi. Paul writes in chapter three, verses two and three, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, Paul is saying, hey, listen, Beware of those who teach that you have to be circumcised to be accepted by God. Those who are saying you have to do something to be accepted by God. And this kind of teaching was pretty prevalent in Paul's day, like it is in our day. And this is the kind of teaching that actually tried to separate the church in Rome and the church in Galatia. So this is something that would definitely divide the church. Now, whether it was disputes amongst members on a personal level or whether it was disagreements among the congregation on a theological doctrinal level, we don't know. All we do know is that Paul is steadfast and consistent in this letter to call the church to oneness, to call them to unity. And it all begins in chapter one, verse 27. So if you have your Bibles, chapter one, verse 27, just look in at that one verse so we can kind of set the scene here. 
Philippians 1.27, this is what Paul says to the church. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Do you see the unity language there? You're doing this together. Now Paul wants us, or should I say, Paul wants to help the church keep their good thing going. He wants this church to have this reputation of being a church that lives according to the gospel, who lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, not for their sake, there is good in that, but for the glory of God. This is the beginning of Paul's call for the Philippian church to pursue oneness at the cost of themselves. To pursue oneness at the cost of themselves. And look what he does here in verse 27. This is really encouraging and helpful. He connects a life worthy of the gospel, in verse 27, with lives that are unified around the gospel. Lives that are lived worthy of the gospel are lives that are unified around the gospel. Paul understands that unity is a direct product of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God into salvation. The gospel is what brings unholy sinners together, redeems them and unites them to a holy God. And just like Christ in the gospel has united us to a holy God, the offshoot of that is that he is uniting an unholy, made holy people together. Paul call, Peter calls this a royal priesthood in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And this is because being united to Christ automatically unites us to one another. Do you see that? Being united to Christ automatically unites us to one another. Thomas Watson, a 17th century preacher, commented on this. Here's what he had to say about this. He said, Christ, having made peace through the blood of his cross, he died not only to make peace between God and man, but between man and man. Christ suffered on the cross that he might cement Christians together with his blood. As he prayed for peace, so he paid for peace. Christ was himself bound to bring us into the bond of peace. The gospel reconciles us to a holy God and it reconciles us to a holy people. Paul understands this and says, hey, listen, because the gospel's brought you to God, because the gospel's brought you together, to stay unified is to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. This union that we have is truly a divine union. It's beautiful, it's special, it's unique, and it's precious in the sight of God. So Paul tells the church that life consistent with the gospel is a life consistent, consistent in unity and in harmony. But like all Christian virtues, we must cultivate and practice these things. Although we have unity in Christ, we still need to work on unity together, right? It, 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 I don't know how long you've been a Christian, Let's just say you're not a Christian. Let's just say you're just new to church and you're visiting. You can survey any other relationship, any other family dynamic. And unity, togetherness, oneness, harmony is something you have to work on. And that applies directly to the church. We aren't void of this. We have to work on it. Unity needs to be nurtured. 
Unity needs to be pursued. It's ours in Christ, yet we keep on moving towards it. How is that done? Here Paul argues that to maintain unity, we must live and die for each other daily. We must live and die for each other daily. Now, that's easier said than done, right? Paul knows this. So he first calls the church to rediscover the motive to pursue unity, which is helpful for us. If we're supposed to live and die for each other, then we need to have the, the proper motive that's going to actually propel us to actually look at one another and actually care enough to die for each other, to serve one another, to give up our interests for each other. So Paul gives us the motive, and this is our first point this morning in the text, the motivation. What is the motive to live and die for one another? Let me give you the Sunday school answer, okay? The answer the kids are getting up there. And children, well, they usually get up there in children's ministry. There's not children's ministry today. The, the toddlers or the infants are getting up there. The answer is Jesus. What is our motivation to live and die for each other? Jesus. Just a little pro tip. You can give Jesus the answer for anything. And it usually works, okay? But Paul does give us the answer Jesus. But not just thinking about Jesus, but thinking about the implications of what it means to be united to Jesus. What it means to both know Jesus and be known by him. What it means to be in Christ. And Paul gives us that in chapter 2 verse 1. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Let's stop there. Paul's saying, take a second and consider all of the graces that you have received and been gifted through your union with God that has come about through the life and the death of Christ. Think about what you have in God. Think about the peace, think about the joy, think about the love, think about the comfort, think about the encouragement, think about the hope. Think about all those things that came about through Christ living and dying for you. You want the motivation to live and die for others? Think about Jesus. Think about what you have in Christ. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, he's saying if you've received anything from Christ, like encouragement in suffering for the fact that Christ suffered and died for you, if there is any comfort and love moving through this verse, what kind of comfort do we get in the love of Christ? Well, we get the love that tells us that nothing will ever separate us from God. We are forever loved. Our ultimate worth is not tied up in any external love, but it's in the love of God. God cares enough about us. He loves us, and nothing can separate us from his love in Christ. And then he says, if there's any participation in the Spirit... This is wonderful. He's talking about if you've experienced and received, and if you are a child of God, then you have forever fellowship with the triune God through Christ's life and Christ's death, his living and his dying, then church, you have all the motivation you need to be able to look past yourself and say, hey, I can live and die for my brothers and sisters around me. Because of what Christ has done for me I am motivated and ought to be motivated to do the same for others. That's what he's saying here in verse two. 
He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, the mind of Christ, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, being unified. If in Christ you have received so much, Paul's saying to the the Philippian church, complete my joy, but looking at one another the way Christ looks at you. Living for one of the way Christ has lived for you and dying for one of the way Christ has died for you. This is the motive, church. Which brings us to the point, excuse me, which brings us to point number two, the method. Okay, so now we have this framework, this motive. Okay, now how do we do this? How do we actually live this life of Christ? How do we actually die this death of Christ? What is Paul actually telling us to do? Well, the method of living and dying for one another is quite simple, but it's hard to receive, like a lot of Jesus' teachings. It's simple to understand, but it's extremely hard. It can be extremely hard to actually practice. Praise be to God, we have the Holy Spirit that actually empowers us to live the way Christ has called us to live. But here's the, the method. Paul says, dying like Jesus is for us is dying to self. And living... Like Jesus is simply that, to look and live towards one another in a way that the same way that is consistent with the way Christ lived towards us. This is Philippians chapter two, verses three through five. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours In Christ Jesus. That's hard to receive, right? So verse three and four both start with the negatives, things that we shouldn't do, things that we can put off. Paul says in three, do nothing from selfish ambition. And then verse four, he says, look not only to your own interests. Ouch, okay. This is a call to draw our eyes off ourself. And put aside our pride and our interests. This is a call to die to self, church. In verses three and four at the end, we get the positive, things to do. He says, in humility, so in lowliness, count others more significant than yourself. And verse four, look out for the interests of others. Paul is saying, now that your eyes are off yourself, consider those around you. Now that your interests are out of you, consider the interests of the people around you. This is a call to live as Christ. You put these two instructions together and that's where I got my point. (laughs) Living for Christ and dying for Christ. Paul is saying this is how you ought to live and this is how you stay together, church. This is is the, 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 the bed, the seating bed to grow and cultivate and have beautiful unity in the midst of your church. Now, like I said, that's easier said than done, right? What makes this simple command so hard, well, there are a lot of things that make it really hard, but let me just point out one, is that it pushes against our flesh's default mode. I'm not sure about you, but I'm not prone to think about others the moment I wake up. I'm pretty much thinking about my toothbrush and my coffee. (laughs) And those orders switch from time to time. I don't know why, but they do. I'm prone to think about my own interests. I'm prone to think about myself. That's not a bad thing to take care of myself. All I'm pointing out is we don't need to teach ourselves how to think of ourselves. That is our default mode. 
The natural man thinks of self first. What's best for me? How will this affect me? How much time will this take me? What's in it for me? How will this make me look? Why can't we do it my way? This is, these are, I mean, I hope it's not just me. I would imagine it's all of us, right? We have, the, this is the natural default that the Holy Spirit, by God's grace, is constantly calling us out of every single day. And for me, sometimes it starts earlier in some days and later in other days. Sometimes the Holy Spirit does it through his word. Sometimes he does it through my wife. Sometimes he does it through my friends. He for sure does it through my kids, constantly. But this is our default. We struggle with this. What happens when we live with selfish ambition and conceit in the church? What happens when we live for ourselves in the body of Christ? I'll tell you what happens. Our love for one another is conditional. It's not unconditional, it becomes conditional. Our relationships are formed based off of what we can get out of them. And so that makes us picky with who we want to talk to, who we want to spend our time with, who deserves our time in the body of Christ. We think less of those around us or we can be tempted to for sure. It's easy to grow impatient with one another. It's easy to get irritated with other people in the body of Christ. We start to elevate our preferences over others. We think if it's either our way or the highway, you know, like I can't believe so-and-so would make that decision or say it that way or whatever it is. We start to look down our noses at Christians and think, man, if they could only be at our level. We get clicky. We start thinking of our people, who we get along with the most, you know? And to be clear, it's okay to be drawn to people with similar interests, okay? We can do that, that's fine. But when we do that for selfish reasons, out of conceit, or the way Paul puts it is selfish ambition, then we're at danger of killing the unity that we have in the body of Christ. Because we're not considering other people's interests over our own. We're thinking about ourself. And that is so contrary to the gospel. That is the opposite of the way Jesus called us to live. And that is the opposite way that Jesus lived himself. Selfish ambition and conceit kill unity. John Owen, the 17th century pastor, he commented on what causes division in his age, okay, in the 17th century. He said this, to speak plainly among all churches in the world that are free from idolatry and persecution, it is not different opinions or difference in judgment about revealed truths, nor is it different practice in sacred administrations, but pride, self-interest, love of honor, and reputation, these are the true causes of evangelical disunity. Now that's, that's the 17th century. Paul is saying the exact same thing in his century. And church, we're seeing the exact same thing in our day and age. Owen is saying the great unity killer is not new policies, it's not differing opinions, it's not even different convictions over biblical truths. The unity killer in healthy churches is people who are unwilling to humble themselves and to consider others more important than they. People unwilling to consider killing their preferences over their pride. Again, if you haven't seen it yet, which I'm sure most of you have, we see this all over the place. We see it in friendships. I've seen it in friendships. I've seen it in families and marriages. And I've definitely seen it in the church. I mean, how many relationships could have been restored if someone just would have humbled themselves and just considered the needs of 
the party involved higher and more worthy than their own? How many marriages healed and families reunited? It's easier said than done, but it's worth every ounce of our fight, church. It's hard to do, but this is the call of Christ in our lives. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus calls us to die for him. He calls us to die to self and to live as he lived. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That always just hits, you know? When Christ calls a man, he calls him or bids him come and die. He's not just talking about giving up sin, which sometimes we can just think, oh yeah, I've definitely given up sin. He's talking about giving up your self-interests. He's talking about giving up self He's asking us to carry a cross that really has no benefit for us, right? Think about it. Do you think that Jesus carrying his cross benefited him? No. He did it for us. Christ died for us. The the cross that we carry is for the glory of God, 100%. But the close second is the cross that we carry, this self-death is for one another. It's to love each other. It's to bring each other closer to the Lord. It's to encourage each other. Christ is calling us to carry our cross for the glory of God and for the good of others. Romans 12 essentially tells us we are called to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, not conforming to the flesh, our own desires or our self-interests or sin, but being transformed and being renewed further into the mind of Christ. For what? For the glory of God and for the good of others, the unity of the saints. I love knowing that I'm not my own. And God makes it very clear that we are not our own. We were bought with a price. We are meant to glorify God in our bodies and we are meant to do that through walking with the Lord, but also walking and living in unity and harmony with one another. So yeah, it can be hard, but isn't it supposed to be? Let me ask a couple questions to help kind of flesh this point out and then we'll move into the next point. Do you think it was easy, and I don't want to sound like, I want to be careful with this, but do you you think it was easy for Jesus to leave his glory in heaven to take on frail, weak, mortal flesh. I mean, I, I mean, he's God, but I don't think it was an easy thing. Was it easy for him, the righteous, perfect, holy one, to just live amongst sin and suffering and hate and death? Was it easy for him to experience betrayal? Was it easy to experience beatings, the cat of nine tails, having his beard pulled out, nailed to a cross, Was it easy for him to experience death for our sin, having the wrath of God poured on him? No, I do not think that was easy. And judging by Christ's prayers for deliverance, his crying out to God the Father, I do not think it was easy. 
but it was worth it to him. For Christ to come down and live in human flesh and die the death we deserved was worth it. Verse Hebrews 12, 2 helps explain so. He says, for it was the joy that was set before him, Christ, that propelled him to endure the cross, despising the shame, and now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It wasn't easy, but it was worth it. And it was glorious. And through it, he has brought many sons to glory. Church, we are called to die to self and to live as Christ. And it is not an easy life. But let me say this, lest we get, lest we're tempted to be discouraged here, okay? Number one, although living and dying over and over again for each other isn't the easy life, it most certainly is the good life. You've heard the saying, it's more blessed to give than receive. That was definitely not true as a kid. <laughs> I mean, I don't care what my mom and dad said, it was not more blessed to give than receive when I was 10. But I have definitely seen my life what my parents meant by that. It is blessed to give up our lives for others, for the glory of God. When Jesus walked this earth, his considering others more than himself manifested in countless miracles. Blind eyes were opened, deaf ears were unstopped, mute mouths spoke, disease was healed, even the dead came back to life, church. Is that not miraculous? This was the result of Christ humbling himself and considering others worthy of his life, of his power, of his, of his grace, of his mercy, of his healing touch. So church, when we die to self and consider others' interests over our own and humbling ourselves and serving each other and loving each other and praying for each other and bearing each other's burdens, I think in a real sense, we are participating in the miraculous work of Christ in the life of his people. We are embracing the mind of Christ. We are living the life of Christ. And by God's grace, if we're doing that, we're experiencing the power of Christ amongst each other. It's a hard life, but it is a good life. And it is a blessed life. The second thing I want to say is it gets easier. <laughs> Living and dying for each other gets easier and gets better. And it's not because we get used to it. It gets easier because the beauty and the majesty of Christ as we live our lives in fellowship with the Lord becomes more paramount in our minds. As we grow as Christians, Christ, it's not that he becomes more beautiful. We just see and, and, and start to understand how beautiful he really is. It is a constant falling in love with Jesus throughout our lives. We encounter his word, we encounter his people, and we see more of the glory of God. We see more of the love of Christ, more of the grace that we have received. We have better understanding and depths of how we've been forgiven of so much. How could God come and save people like us? As we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, dying for others gets easy because we just see Christ for who he truly is. He's just so worthy of it. He's just so beautiful. And because he is so beautiful, Others, his people, image bearers, are worthy of us to live our lives in the same way. Now this brings us to our third point. 
Paul now takes us to the source material for his argument on how we stay together. This whole living for each other and dying for each other. And this point I've called the majesty. He says, consider Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is a powerful passage in scripture. This will be worthy of committing to memory. Christ is not calling you to a life that he hasn't already lived. Paul is pointing this out. Paul is saying, look to Christ, the true lowly servant. Look to Christ, the one who truly lived and died for you. Just think on what Christ has done for you. This is what he's saying. Church, look at, look at Jesus. Look and see what he's done. If this does not move you to give all that you have for him, then nothing will. In this text, he points out, look, see how low he has become for you. He is God and always will be, yet he emptied himself, counting his riches and glory in the heavenly places worth leaving temporarily for you, for me. Christ left the glory of heaven for a manger, took on frail human flesh, lived a life with no home, lived a life where people despised him, people called him names, people thought he was of the devil. I mean, how is that to, be the, to literally be God incarnate and be accused of being the devil? Christ went as low as anyone could go. No one can come close to how low Christ came. And he did it for you, Paul is saying, look at Christ's life. Look how lowly he came to serve you. Model that. You'll never get anywhere close, but, but model that. Get low and serve others the way Christ has served you. And then he says, now see the death he died for you. Again, there's the living component. So humble yourself, live for others, and now die. Look at Christ's death. There is, no other, there is no more excruciating death that anyone will ever experience than what Christ experienced. Maybe tempted to think, well, other people have been you know, crucified in history and have gone through this type of physical death. But there's just no comparison because of the spiritual death that Christ died to save us. The fact that Jesus literally took the sins of the world upon himself and then took the wrath of God, the punishment for those sins upon himself. And then experienced separation from the Father because he took the sins of us upon himself. There is no death that would, that would suffice to save us like the death that Christ died for us. So when Christ calls us to die for one another, to die for him, it pales in comparison to what Christ has done for us and that church should help motivate us to go, man, I can do this. And I can do it for Christ because he is worthy of it. Christ experienced misery for us. But in these last verses, we see that his misery brought about majesty. It brought about glory. And Jesus is so filled with generosity 
that he actually invites us into this life that leads to this majesty. Philippians chapter two, verse nine, 11, we'll close here. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The call to live and die is also a call to majesty and glory. So it was with Christ, so it will be with us. Jesus said so in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This is the ultimate confidence and hope. This is just one more jewel, but a big jewel in the treasure chest of our union with Christ. And this church is how we stay together for the glory of God by living and dying for each other just as Christ has done for us. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from his forever love that will never, ever let you be separated from him, and if you made it into the fellowship of the triune God on the coattail of Jesus, Church, we have a tremendous honor and privilege and blessing to both live and die for one of the way Christ has lived and died for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for just giving us Jesus. Jesus, thank you so much for coming and living and dying for us. God, your life and death gives us an example, but but more than that, God, your life and death has given us life. And a life that's so free of the fear of death. To know, God, that we have this hope of heaven to be with you. To know, God, that you will glorify us as you've done your son. We will be in heaven with Jesus and you, and we will enjoy life and joy and pleasures forevermore. God, as we consider the cross, as we consider the blessings and the benefits that we have because we are in Christ, please motivate us through your Holy Spirit to die to self, to put away selfish ambition and conceit, to look toward the interests of others, take our eyes off ourselves and consider others more worthy of our time and our energy and our efforts God, we pray that you would just keep this church together. We love you. Thank you for what you're doing here. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.